Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and join us today in Romans chapter 2 as we continue our study through this book, focusing today on verses 17 through the end of the chapter. In the first 16 verses of chapter 2, Paul speaks of God's righteous judgment pertaining to the Jew. In verse 17 of Romans chapter 2, you flip back over there, he says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, pause. He said, But if you call yourself a Jew. Now, by the time of Christ, Jew was the most common term used in regards to the people of Israel. In fact, they had early in their history been known as Hebrews simply because of the language that they spoke, and then Israelites. They were known as Israelites following that. Jew is derived from the word Judah, which is one of the 12 tribes, as well as the name of the southern kingdom after the kingdom divided following Solomon's death. The kingdom divided, the southern kingdom became Judah, the northern kingdom was known as Israel. And Jim told you that on Wednesday night's Bible study. But as time progressed, especially during the Babylonian captivity, the term Jew or Judah came to refer to all the Hebrew people. In fact, just think about in recent history, during World War II, that's how they were labeled. In fact, the Star of David, who was the, from the tribe of Judah, became the mark by which they were identified. That was the mark. They were tattooed with that mark or with that, that German translation of the word Jew or Judah. That's how they were identified. And it became, as it were, over the years, decades and centuries, a badge of honor. And it came to represent their heritage, religious and racial or ethnic. And they deemed the term Jew as quite fitting and as well deserved. And so that's what Paul addresses here. However, as time moved on, the Jews lost sight of the trust that God had given them and viewed themselves superior by their chosen status. In fact, what was God's trust given to them? What was the covenant that God made with Abraham? That through you, what? All the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so that was the trust that was given to them as the Hebrew people, that through you all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And yet rather than, than understand that and hold tenaciously to that, they, they withdrew themselves because they saw themselves as superior, basically by virtue of their chosen nature or their chosenness. And they saw that as kind of a badge of separation. And we should not overlook this point. Look at, they claimed to rely on the, the law of God. They boasted in God. They claimed to know God's will and be able to determine what was most important in the law. All this because they were instructed from the law. Listen to their boasting. They claimed to be guides to the blind spiritually, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish a teacher of children. They profess to have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. But with all of that, Paul says, you're not obeying it. You're not doing it. 
All these things had become to them a matter of pride and status rather than something they lived and practiced. So by the time of Paul's writing, the Jews were content with merely knowing God's law and had little desire or motivation to keep it. They were, as Murray said, failing to carry into effect the teaching of the law, yet they were quick to judge others. In verses 21 through 24, look at what he says here. He says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say the one must not commit adult, one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The bottom line is this they did not practice what they preached. Remember the old saying, I know your parents never said this to you, son, daughter. Do what I say. Don't worry about what I do. I hope none of our parents said that to us, but I have actually heard that before. They did not practice what they preached. In fact, in verse 21 clearly paints for us the scenario of one who teaches someone the truths of God's law, that is his word, and then fails to teach themselves. People ask me sometime, do, in fact, I had someone out, this has not been here, it's been many years ago, Ask me after a Sunday morning service. They come and say, Pastor, I just have one question I want to ask you. Do you live this stuff? And I said, by the grace of God, that is, I, in, I endeavor, I, I endeavor to do that because, the, I mean, I, I say to people, you don't understand that. Yes, you are hearing my voice projected from this pulpit to you, but it simply doesn't move this way. It moves this way. <laughs> and it finds its way from here to here to here and ultimately to here. Oftentimes, I should just stop and tell you, you can check out if you want to. I think I'm preaching to myself. And maybe I'm preaching to someone else who is listening to me. But they were teaching others the law, teaching others the word, but were not teaching themselves. They weren't doing the very things they were telling others they should be doing. They did not heed their own teaching. And this is the epitome of hypocrisy. In fact, turn to Matthew with me for a moment. Back to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 23. It's the epitome of hypocrisy. Matthew 23. And this is the words of our Lord. As He's approaching the end of His, his ministry. He's issuing His seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. And listen to what he says in verses 1 through 3 of, of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. He says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you. In other words, he's saying, he's saying what they're telling you is not wrong. Do what they tell you, because they're sitting in the seat of Moses. When they read the law in the synagogue, when they get the prophets, they're sitting in that seat of authority in the synagogue, so do what they're telling you to do. But look at this but not the works they do. <laughs> For they preach, but do not practice. So he's saying, okay, they're giving you the right teaching, but they're not themselves living what they are teaching, what they are preaching. 
And if you read down further, and we won't do that for the sake of time, Jesus then shortly after this goes into his seven woes, pronounces serious judgment on them by virtue of their hypocrisy. And that really is the crux of that. So the scribes and Pharisees typified the hypocrisy Paul is now addressing. Paul is teaching is pretty explicit in what he is accusing them of. He's accusing them of stealing, and we could go into that and say, well, what could that possibly be? Well, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were picking people's pockets, literally. It doesn't mean they were walking in people's homes and stealing things or breaking into their homes and committing burglaries, but it was dealing unfairly with people. When you deal unfairly with somebody in business, you're stealing from them. That's stealing. When you're cheating others, in business deals and not being honest with them. That's stealing from them. And then he goes right in from stealing to adultery, sexual sin. And then he goes into robbing temples. And we're not even sure. The commentators are kind of divided on what that even means. But somehow there's significance to that. In fact, even some believe that some of the more zealous Jews, when pagan temples would be actually overrun with themselves, take things from pagan temples. That's kind of their trophies. And Paul is saying, when you teach against stealing, do you steal? When you teach against adultery, do you commit adultery? When you teach against robbing temples, do you, do you plunder temples? All that's pretty serious stuff. And then in verses 23 and 24, Paul issues a strong rebuke. And look at what he says in verses 23 and 24. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What a powerful statement. The hypocritical Jews were breaking the very law they boasted in, and in so doing were dishonoring God. So all sin is an affront to God no matter who commits it. However, when one who professes to be knowledgeable of God's law and professes to be a follower of God breaks the law, there is a greater dishonor associated with the violation. Listen, church. Did you hear that? When one professes, might I bring it into our context, when one professes to be a Christian, when one professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ and lives totally at odds with what they profess to be, then there's a problem. And that hypocrisy, and that's exactly what it is, that hypocrisy causes the name of the Lord to be blasphemed. Blasphemo in the Greek, it literally means to be spoken evil of. Think about that. Or to speak reproachfully in regards to. It means to be reviled. It's a strong word. So a believer's willful disobedience to the truth he has been given and resisting the Holy Spirit's conviction ruins his witness, but it not only ruins his witness, it causes the name of the Lord to be spoken evil of. What a, that is a powerful standard given to us. And that's, that's, I'm, not meant, I'm not meaning to, to lay some type of legal burden on you. But that just, that just clearly is what Paul is saying. As Christians, they're speaking specifically to Jews, but it's applicable to us as believers. As Christians who profess Christ 
and profess to follow Christ, should not our lives bear a marked difference? In everything we do, the way that we deal with others, the way we conduct our business, the way we do everything, it should because the minute we miss the mark and the world is standing there watching you, believe me, do you know they're watching you? In fact, they're watching you so intently, they're just looking for that one slip, that one mistake that you make so that they can speak reproachfully or revile not only you, but the name of the one who you profess to be following. And that is exactly what's happening. In fact, you'll hear things like, look, and they call themselves a Christian. In such a statement such as this, where is the emphasis Where's the emphasis? Certainly, the individual is responsible for drawing attention to his actions, but ultimately, where is the attention? The attention is on Christ. It is as if Christ Himself has committed the act. It is as if Christ Himself has committed the sin. It is His name that has been spoken evil of or blasphemed. Do we see our sin this way, church? Do we see our sin this way? Do we give thought to how our actions reflect on the name of Christ? When we conduct our business, when we go into whatever it might be, dealings with others, do we ask ourselves, do we first of all examine ourselves very carefully and then ask ourselves the question, is what I am doing, how will it reflect on my witness as a Christian and on the name of Christ? I've said in the past, not often because it is such a hard statement, but I'll say it here and I'll say it now. Some who profess to be Christians yet refuse to obey Christ and His Word should do themselves and God a favor and not tell anybody. And do not fear, people will not know. <laughs> living in blatant, and this is what the Jews were doing, living in blatant, open contradiction to Scripture causes the name of Christ to suffer. I'm wondering... And I have not done the research on this. I'm wondering this generation gap we see between the younger generation and their disconnection from the church is not some of that. Just watch what happens when a Christian leader or a Christian celebrity falls. Not only is he mocked, but what, what's mocked? In fact, the late night talk show host of making fun of the church and making fun of Christ. Verses 25 through 29, and I can wrap this up fairly quickly. Now Paul, <laughs> it's like Paul has had his hand on a hammer, and he's driven a lot of nails, and now he's got the death nail. And he's got the nail in his hand, and the hammer in this hand, and he's ready to hit this net, death nail. He's fixing to go after their circumcision. Now look at this. For circumcision. The first time he's mentioned this. For circumcision is indeed a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will he not? 
Will not his circumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he was, he was physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code. And circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Can you, can you imagine being a Jewish reader reading this? Listen to this statement. I'll read it again. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. God. At this point, Paul attacks the most significant stronghold of the Jew. As again, John Murray quotes, he quotes Heldane, another commentator. He says, quote, The apostle now pursues the Jew into his last retreat and proceeds to strip them of the last refuge to which they prided themselves, their elusive trust in the possession of circumcision. End of quote. So first, he does, make, he does so by making it clear that circumcision is a value when followed through with obedience to the law. In other words, he's not saying circumcision doesn't matter. He said it matters when it's followed by obedience to the law. So he's not talking about the insignificance of circumcision. Secondly, however, break the law and circumcision loses its value. In other words, physical circumcision is not a license to disobedience. A Jew, though physically circumcised, that continually breaks the law, has the law he has been given, proves that he is not only just that, that it was just an outward circumcision. That it wasn't really anything but just an outward rite, a ceremonial rite. And that outward ceremonial rite is of no significance, of no value, if, he does, if it's not backed up by obeying the law, following the word. And then in verses 27 and 26 and 27, I read to you a moment ago. Paul's point is this, that which is pleasing to God is obedience to His will. That's what pleases God. Circumcision means obedience. I'm sorry, circumcision minus obedience is worthless. Yet uncircumcision with obedience is deemed the real circumcision. Now that's important. Paul then turns the table on the circumcised. He says the uncircumcised obedient ones actually are those who have been given the law and those who have been given the law and circumcision yet break the law. Such a thought must have been riveting to the Jewish. In other words, the ones who have uncircumcised but keep the law will sit in judgment in a sense over those who have been circumcised but don't obey the law. How riveting that must have been to the Jewish reader. Now he's not literally saying that the uncircumcised will sit in a seat of judgment, literally pronouncing judgment on the Jew. But he's figuratively speaking that the evidence of the uncircumcised yet obedient life will act as it were evidence to condemn the Jew who has a circumcision but does not obey the law. And then lastly, in verses 28 and 29, in these verses, Paul delivers what could rightfully be considered the death blow to the misguided confidence the sinning Jews may have held in their ethnic status. Paul destroys any confidence, any assurance in a religious ceremonial act. 
He brings circumcision to a whole new level. You know what circumcision did in the Old Covenant? It pointed to something. It pointed to something. It meant something to come. In fact, the prophets would, would say that. Paul destroys any confidence in a religious ceremony act. He brings circumcision to a whole new level, not outward or physical, but inward and spiritual. He's not denying the physical act, nor is he criticizing it. The point is the outward has no spiritual significance except that of a sign and seal of that which it represents. What does it represent? The true circumcision is the work of grace in the heart of a person by the Holy Spirit. It is the work of grace and the heart of the Holy Spirit. Speaking of the circumcision of the heart. The outward physical circumcision was ordered by the law and performed by the hands of man. However, not so with the circumcision of the heart. It is not only, it's not, it's not by the letter, but the circumcision of the heart. Is by sovereign work of the Holy Spirit of God. It's His grace. And when that is done, then following it, proceeding from it, is an obedience to God. The obedient believer, regardless of the circumcision of the flesh, is truly the circumcised. The one who's had his heart circumcised by the Spirit of God. Who's walking in obedience to God's Word. Paul says, you know what? He's truly the circumcised one. Oh, he may not be circumcised ceremonially, but he is the circumcised one. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. The Jewish reader has now been confronted with his own faulty assurance based on an outward ceremonial rite. He's confronted with the reality that he has not experienced a circumcision of the heart marked by obedience to the law, if he has not, that he is in God's eyes and estimation not considered his true covenant people. That's exactly what he's saying. You think because you have the law, yet you don't obey it. And you think because you are circumcised in the flesh, and yet you don't obey the law, that you are my people? No. What a powerful statement. However, on the other hand, those who may not be circumcised in the flesh, who keep the law, who obey the law, are indeed those who have been circumcised in their hearts and are obeying, they are my real covenant people. There goes their assurance in anything of the flesh. And that's what Paul is saying basically back in Philippians. He said, if anyone has reason to boast in the flesh, I have more of the reason. And what does he say after reading that pedigree? And I stopped before I even read it to you. After reading those things, he tells you basically this. That all of these things, what? Mean nothing. What does matter? He tells you. The excellency of knowing Christ. Of following Christ. Of pursuing Christ. Of obeying Christ. That's what matters. Paul will not and has not stood before his Savior and handed him his card. 
He is born in the name of Christ. See, the man, in this case, the Jewish reader, that comes to this truth, accepts it, and receives the circumcision of the heart, now receives praise from God. And that's exactly how this ends. See, before, people are always looking for the praises of men, right? And they wear, I mean, think about, think about as Jesus would, can you imagine, I just picture Jesus' day for a moment, of walking through the streets of Jerusalem. And there, here He is, He's got on His, he's got on his garments, and his, He's wearing His sandals, His feet are dirty with the, the dust and dirt off the streets of the city. He's slept on the ground at night and fed and eaten with His disciples. And as He walks by the temple and walks in the temple, He sees all these religious characters who dress in all their garb. Their phylacteries on their head and their arm, their, their shawls and all the things hanging, and they're, they're looking, and as they walk through, just what are they what are they seeking? What are they looking for as they walk around like this? They're looking for the praise of men. And here you have God in human flesh. He's not dressed like that. No desire to please men. No desire to draw the attention of men. In fact, Isaiah said he had no form nor comeliness that we should desire him. What did he seek? Only the acceptance of who? His father. And so for those who, are, who have had their hearts circumcised, who live in obedience to the Word of God, who desire to follow Him with their whole heart, are those, Paul says, who will receive His praise. You mean we're going to actually, God's going to praise us? Yeah. Do you not know what the Scripture says? Well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Now, enter into the reward that I have made for you. I have prepared for you. All the praise of men means nothing at that point. Nothing. Nothing. Though we suffer the ridicule of this world, we suffer the persecution of this world, we are not living to please this world. We are living that we might one day experience the praise of God. You've been listening to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. And we would like to thank you for tuning in today. We encourage you to visit our website at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org to find out more information about this ministry. If you are in search of a church home, we would encourage and welcome your visit. We are located at 1016 Clearwater Road in Daytona Beach, one quarter mile north of Bevel, on the west side of Nova Road. For more information, visit our website at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org or call 386-255-0604. Thanks for listening today, and please tune in next time as we continue to teach, touch, and transform lives by faithfully proclaiming God's Word.